You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, man, I have an extra special guest. Edwin Conway runs all of alternatives for BlackRocks. His title is Global Head of Alternative Investors, and he covers everything from structured credit to real estate to hedge funds to you name it. Uh, the group runs over $300 billion, and he has been a driving force into making this a substantial portion of of BlackRock's $9 trillion in total assets, uh, the opportunity set that exists for alternatives, even for a firm like BlackRock that specializes in public markets, is potentially huge, and BlackRock wants a big piece of it. I found this conversation to be absolutely fascinating, and I think you will also. So with no further ado, my conversation with BlackRock's head of alternatives, Edwin Conway. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Edwin Conway. He is the global head of BlackRock's Alternative Investors, which runs about $300 billion in assets. He has a team of over 1,100 professionals to help him manage those assets. Uh, BlackRock's global alternatives include businesses that cover real estate, infrastructure, hedge funds, private equity, and credit. He is a senior managing director for BlackRock. Edwin Conway, welcome to Bloomberg. Sorry, thank you for having me. So you've been in the financial services industry for a long time. You were at Credit Suisse and Blackstone, and now you're at BlackRock. Tell us what the process was like breaking into the industry. Uh, it's, it's an interesting one, Barry. I, I grew up in a very small town in the middle of Ireland. Um, and the, the breakthrough to the industry was one of more coincidence as opposed to purpose. Uh, I enjoyed uh, the game of rugby for many years uh, and through an introduction whilst in university and University College Dublin in Ireland, had a chance to you know, play rugby at, a, at, a, at a quite a quite a decent level um, and get to know people that were across the industry. It was really through an internship and a suggestion, uh, given my focus on business and finance and things, that uh, you know the, the financial services sector may be a great place to traverse and, and get to know. And literally through rugby connections, uh, being part of a good school, 
uh, I had an opportunity to, to, to really understand uh, what this service sector in many respects could provide to clients and became absolutely intrigued with it. And, and was it my, my primary ambition in life to be in the financial services sector? I can definitively say no. But uh, through the circumstance of a, a game that I love to play and be part of, uh, was introduced to it through an internship and, and actually fell in love with them. Hmm, quite quite interesting. And alternative investments at BlackRock almost seems like a contradiction in terms. Most of us tend to think of BlackRock as the giant $9 trillion public markets firm, best known for ETFs and indices. Uh, alternatives seems to be one of the fastest growing groups within the firm. Uh, this was $50 billion just a few years ago. It's now over $300 billion. How has this become such a fast-growing part of BlackRock? When you look at the various facets which you introduced at the start, Barry, um, we've actually been in alternatives, albeit 30 years now. Now, the scale, as you know, which you can operate on the beta side of the business far surpasses that on the alpha side. You know, for us throughout the years, this was very much about how can we deliver investment excellence to our clients and, and performance, right? They're foregoing an opportunity somewhere else to explore an, al- an alpha opportunity in, in alternatives. And I think being so connected to our clients, understanding that this pivot was absolutely taking place not only 30 years ago, but in a very pronounced way today, um, you know, we continue to invest in this business to support those ambitions. You know, they're clearly seeing this as a world that's going through a tremendous amount of transformation. And with some of the challenges, quite frankly, in the traditional asset classes, being able to leverage at BlackRock, the BlackRock muscle, to really explore these alpha opportunities across the various alternative asset classes, and in our mind, was an imperative. Um, and it's the imperative, really, from the firm's perspective, and when you look at our purpose, is to serve those clients. So the need was coming from them. The necessity to have alternatives in their whole portfolio was was very uh, was very much growing in, in, in prominence, uh, and you know it's taken us 30 years to, to build this journey, and, and I think Barry, quite frankly, we're we're far from being done. As you look at the industry, the demand is going to continue to grow. So, I think you could expect to see from us a continued investment in the space because we don't believe you can live without alternatives in today's world. Huh. huh, that's really that's really interesting. So so let's dive a little deeper into the product strategy for alternatives, which you are responsible for at BlackRock. Our audience is filled with potential investors. Tell them a little bit about what that strategy is. Well, so we're I think as you mentioned, we're we're in excess of three hundred billion today. Um, and you know, when we started this business, it, it was less about you know, building a, a moat around private equity or real estate. I think Larry thinks and Rob Capito's vision was, how, how do we build a platform to allow us to be relevant to our clients across the various alternative asset classes, but also uh, within, the, within the, the confines of what they are permitted to do on a year-by-year basis? So to always be relevant um, irrespective of where they are on their journey from respective liabilities, demands for liquidity, demands for returns. So we took a different approach, I think, Barry, to most. It was around how do we scale into the business across, like you said, real estate equity and debt, infrastructure equity and debt. And we, we think of that as the real assets platform of our business. 
Then you take our private equity um, capabilities, both in primary investing, secondary, et cetera. Um, and then you have private credit and, and a very significant hedge fund platform. So we think all of these have a real role. And, and depending on clients' liquidity needs and, and risk appetite, our goal was to, over the years, really build into this to allow us solve for these challenging uh, needs that our clients have. I think as an industry, right, and over the, the many years that alternatives have been in existence, this has been about return enhancement initially. But I think fundamentally, the change is around the receptivity to the role of alternatives in a client's portfolio has really changed. So we've watched it vary from this is we are in the pursuit of a very total return or absolute return type of an objective to now resilience in our portfolio, yield and income. And so things that probably weren't perceived as valuable in the past because your traditional asset uh, classes were playing a, a more profound role um, alternatives have stepped up in, in, in many respects in the need to provide more than just total return. So we're, we're taking the approach of how do you have a more holistic approach to this? How do we really build a global multi-alternatives capability um, and, and try to partner? And I think that's the important word for us. Try to partner with our clients in, in a way that we can deliver that outperformance, but deliver it in a way that probably our clients haven't been used to in this industry before, because unfortunately, but as we know, it has had its challenges with regard to secrecy, transparency, and so many other aspects. You know, we need to help the industry mature, and, and really that was our ambition. Put our clients' needs first, build around that, uh, and really be relevant in all aspects of what we're what they're doing or trying to accomplish on behalf of the people that they support um, and represent. So we'll talk a little bit about transparency and, and secrecy and those sorts of things later. But right now, I have to ask what I guess is kind of an obvious question. Uh, this growth that you've achieved within BlackRock for non-public asset allocation within a portfolio, what is this coming at expense of? It, are these dollars that are b being moved from public assets into private assets, or are you just competing with other private investors? It's, it's, it's really both. What, what you are seeing from our clients, if I, if I take a step back, um, today the institutional client community, and, and you think about the, the retirement conundrum we're all facing around the world, right? It's such an awful challenge when you think how ill-prepared people are for that eventual stepping back from the workplace. And then, you know, longevity is your friend, but can also be a very, a very difficult thing to obviously live with if you're not prepared for retirement. The typical pension plan today, Barry, is allocating about 25 to 28% in alternatives, predominantly private markets. Um, what they're telling us is that's increasing quite substantially going forward. But, you know, the funding for that, that alpha pursuit, for that diversification and that yield is coming from fixed income assets. It's coming from equity assets. So there's a real rebalancing that's been taking place over the past number of years. And, and quite frankly, the evolution and I think the innovation that's taken place, particularly in the past 10 years in alternatives, has been really profound. 
So the days where you just invest in, in a global fund, they still exist. But now you can concentrate your efforts on sector exposure, industry exposures, geographic exposures. And I think the, the menu of things our clients can now have access to has just been so greatly enhanced. Uh, and so the benefit is that. But I think in some, in some respects, Ari, the, the next question is, well, with all of those choices, how do you build the right portfolio for our clients' needs, knowing that each one of our clients' needs are different? So I would say it's absolutely coming from the public side. We're very thankful those that have had a multi-year journey with us on the public side are now allocating capital to us now on the private side too. Because uh, I do think the, the industry, given that change, given that evolution, and given the complexity of these private assets, our clients are looking to, quite frankly, do more with fewer managers because of that complexion of the industry and the complexity that comes with it. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Huh, quite quite interesting. And and I it's pretty easy to see why large institutions might be rotating away from things like treasuries or tips, because there's just no yield there. Um, are you seeing inflows coming in from the public equity side also, the markets put together a pretty good string of years. Yeah, we, we, it, it absolutely has. And, and in many respects, I think, you know, we've had a multi-year period where there was big questions around the alpha that can be generated, for example, from active equities. The question was active or passive. I think what, what we've all realized is that at times when volatility introduces itself, which is, is frequent, even independent of what's been done from a fiscal and, and monetary standpoint, that these alpha-seeking strategies on the traditional side still make a lot of sense. Um, and so, you know, as we think about what's, what's happening here, 
the transition of assets um, from both passive and active strategies uh, to alternatives, it, it's really to create better balance. It's not that there's, there's a lack of relevance anymore in the public side. It's just quite frankly, this, the growth of the private asset base has grown so substantially. Um, you know, I moved Barry to the U.S. in 1998, and you know, it's, it's interesting when you look back at 1998 to today, you start to recognize the equity markets and what was available to invest in. You know, the number of investable opportunities has shrunk by 40 plus percent, which that compression is extraordinarily high. But yet you've seen, obviously, the equity markets grow in stature and significance and prominence, but you're having more concentration risk with some of the big public entities. The converse is true, though. On the, on the private side, there's this explosion of enterprise and innovation, employment creation, and then, I believe, opportunity set has been real. So I look at the, pub, the public side, the investable universe is measured in the thousands. On the private side, it's measured in the millions. Wow. And, and, and I think part of, the, part of the thing our clients are, are not struggling with, but what they're really recognizing with, with enterprises staying private for longer, if not forever, and with this growth of the opportunity set, both in debt and equity, in the private market side, you really can't forego this opportunity. It has to be part of your going forward concern and asset allocation. And I think this is why we're seeing that transformation. And it's not because equities and, and fixed income just aren't relevant anymore. They're very relevant, but they're relevant now uh, in a total portfolio or whole portfolio context beside alternatives. So let's discuss this opportunity set of alternatives. Where are you guys at BlackRock seeing demand? What sectors and um, from what sorts of clients are, are, are is this demand increasing? We're very fortunate, Barry. T today, there isn't a, a single piece of our business within within BlackRock Alternatives that isn't growing. And quite frankly, too, it's, it's, it's really up to us to deliver on the investment objectives that are set forth for those clients. I think on the back of strong, absolute and relative performance, um, you know, thankfully, our, our clients look to us um, to, to help them as, as they think about what they're doing um, as they're exploring more in the alternative um, areas. So, as you know, certainly the private equity and real estate allocations are quite mature in many of our clients' portfolios. Right? They've been around for many decades. I think that the areas where we're seeing, let's call that outside um, demand and opportunity set, just by virtue of the small allocations on a relative basis that exist today is really around infrastructure, Barry, and it's around private credit. So to caveat that, I think all of the areas are certainly growing, and thankfully for us, that's true. Where we're looking at clients, and we believe they're underinvested, we believe they're underinvested in those two asset classes, infrastructure, both debt and equity, and in private credit. Uh, and, and as you think about, you know, why that is, the attributes that they bring to our clients, really important. And in, in a world where your correlations and understanding those correlations um, is important, these are definitely diversifying assets. In a world where you're seeing trillions of dollars, quite frankly, you're providing little to no or even there's negative yield. Um, you know, those shortfalls are real and people need yield. They need income. 
these assets tend to provide that. So the diversification, it comes from these assets. The yield can come from these assets. And because of the immaturity of these asset classes, um, independent of the capital that's flowing in, we still consider them relatively white space. You're not crowded out. Um, There's much room for development in the markets and with our clients' portfolios. And to us, that's exciting because it presents opportunities. So, you know, for at the highest level, you know, they're the two areas who I believe are most underdeveloped in our clients. So, so let's talk about both of those areas. We'll, we'll talk about structured credit in a few minutes. I think everybody kind of understands what, what that is. What, when you say infrastructure as a sector, how does that um, show up as an investment? Or, or, and obviously, I have infrastructure on the brain because we're recording this not too long after the giant infrastructure bill has been passed. Tell us a little bit about what alternative investments in infrastructure looks like. Yeah, it's, you know, it's really in its infancy. And, and, and what do the underlying investments look like? I think traditionally you would consider it as, and part of the bill that has just been announced, you know, roads, bridges, airports. Some of these hard assets some of the core infrastructure investments that have been around for, for actually quite some time. The interesting thing is the, the industry has evolved so much, and but the need for infrastructure is so great across both developed and emerging economies. Um, it's, it's become something that, if done the right way, the attributes we just spoke of can really have a very strong effect on our clients' portfolios. So beyond the core that we just mentioned, well, we've seen a tremendous demand as a result of this energy transition. You're really seeing a spike in activity and the necessity to transition industry to cleaner technologies, um, a movement not away completely from fossil fuels, but integrating new types of clean energy. And as a result, you've seen a, a lot of demand on a global basis for wind and solar. And, and quite frankly, that's why even at, at BlackRock, albeit... Uh, 10, 12 years ago, we really established a capability there to help with that transition, to think about how do we use these technologies, you know, solar panels and wind farms, to generate clean forms of energy for utilities where in some cases they're mandated to procure this type of, this type of power. Um, and you know, when you think about pre-contracting with utilities for long duration, that to me spells very, uh, you know, good uh, risk mitigation and management, an ability to get access to uh, clean forms of energy that throw off yield that can be very complementary to your traditional asset classes, but for very long periods of time. And so, you know, the benefits for us of these these assets is that they are long in duration, they are yield enhancing, they're definitely diversifying. And so for us, you know, we're, we've got about, let's call it about 280 assets around the world that we're managing that literally generate this, this clean electricity. I think to give the relevance of how much, I believe today it's enough to power the country of Spain. Wow. Um, and that's really, that's really changing. So you're seeing governments, so from a policy standpoint, you're seeing governments really embracing new forms of energy transitioning out of bunker fuels, for example, you know, burning diesels, which really spew emissions into the, into the, into the environment. Um, but it's really around modernizing for the future. 
So developed and emerging economies alike want to retain capital. They want to attract new capital. And by having the proper infrastructure to support industry is a really, really important thing. Now, on the back of that, too, one thing we've learned from COVID is that the necessity to really bring e-commerce into how you conduct your business is, is so important. And I think from the theme of digitization within infrastructure, too, is a huge part. So it's not just the energy transition that you're seeing. It's not just roads and bridges, but by allowing businesses to connect to a global consumer, allowing um, children be educated from home, you know, allowing experiences that span geographies and boundaries in a digital form is so important, not just for commerce, but in so many other aspects. And so when you think about cable, fiber optics, as you think about all the other things, even outside of power, that enable us to conduct commerce, to educate, um, there are many examples where, where, Barry, you can build resilience into your portfolio because that need is not measured in years Actually, the shortfall of capital is measured in the trillions, so which means this is a, this is a multi-decade opportunity set from our vantage point, and one which our clients should really avail of. Huh, quite, quite an interesting. And and I mentioned in passing structured credit. Tell us a little bit about what that opportunity looks like. I think of this as a space that is too big for local banks, but too small for Wall Street to finance. Is that uh, uh, an oversimplification? What What is going on in that space? I, I probably couldn't have said it better, Barry. <laughs> it's, it, it's, if we go back to just the, even the, the investable universe, I mean, the, the, the tens of thousands um, of companies, just if we take North America, that are private, that have great leadership, that really have strategic vision, um, and are at the, in some cases, at the start of their growth life cycle, or even if they maintain, they have a very credible and viable business for the future, they still need capital. And you're, you're absolutely right. With the retreat of the banks from this space, um, through various regulations that have come after the global financial crisis, You've seen the asset managers in many respects working behalf of our clients, both wealth and institutional, becoming the new lenders of choice. And, and when, we, when we think about that opportunity set, then it's really understanding the client's desire for risk, right? for something maybe on a lower risk side from middle market lending um, or middle market enterprises where you, know, you can support that organization through its growth cycle all the way to some higher yielding obviously with more risk assets on the opportunistic or even the special situation side. But it, it's, it spans many things. And going back to the commentary around the evolution of the space, you know, private credit today and what you can do has changed so profoundly. It spans the liquidity spectrum. It spans the risk spectrum. And the great news is uh, with the number of companies both here and abroad, the opportunity set is, is being enriched every single day. Um, and we're certainly seeing, particularly going back to the question, are some of these assets coming from uh, the traditional side, the public side? When we think of private credit, you are seeing private credit now being incorporated in fixed income allocations. Um, you know, this is a, is a yielding asset 
This is, these are debt instruments. These are structures we're creating. We're trying to be flexible and dynamic with these clients. But it really is an area where we think it really is still at its, at its infancy relative to where it can potentially be. Huh. That, that's really quite, quite interesting. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Let, let's stick with that concept of, of money rotating away from fixed income. I have to imagine clients are starved for yields. So so what are the popular substitutes for this? Is, is it primarily structured credit? Is it real estate? How do you respond to an institution that says, hey, I'm not getting any sort of realistic coupon on my bonds. I need a substitute. Yeah, it's, 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 it's all of those in many respects. And, and, and I think, too, the, the role even around now at a time where people have questions around inflation, how, how do you substitute this yield efficiency or certainly make up for that shortfall? How do you think about a world where we're increasingly seeing inflation, not as a transitory thing, but it feels certainly quasi-permanent? Um, these are a lot of questions we're, we're getting. And certainly real estate is an important part of how they think about inflation protection, how clients think about yield. But quite frankly, too, we've, we've gone through something none of us really had thought about, a global pandemic. And as you think about real estate, just how you allocate to the sector, you know, what was very heavily influenced with, you know, retail assets, high streets, our shopping behaviors and habits have changed. Uh, we all occupied offices for obviously many, many years pre the pandemic. The shape of how we operate and how we do that has changed. So I think some of the underlying investment uh, investments have changed where you've seen heavily weightings towards office space to leisure travel in the past. Actually, now you've seen a rotation in some respects out of those, just given some of the uncertainties around what the future holds as we come, come through a, a really difficult time. But the great thing about this sector is between senior living, between student housing, between logistics and so many other parts, uh, there are ways in real estate to capture uh, where there's where there is demand, so still a robust opportunity set, and we do think can absolutely be yield enhancing. You know, we mentioned infrastructure. Even if you think about, and we mentioned OECD and and non OECD, you know, merging and 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 developed. You know, and I think about Asia in particular, just as a subset of the world in which we're living in. You know, that is a 2.6 trillion dollar alternative market today growing at a 15% CAGR. 
Um, and quite frankly, the alt growth is is driven by the large economic growth in the region. So even from a regional perspective, if we pivot, you know, it houses 57% of the world's population and yet delivers 47% of the world's economic growth. So think, think of that. And then with regard to, to infrastructure, and goes back to that, this is truly a global phenomenon. So if we just even take that sector, Barry, you realize that the, the way to maintain that type of growth to attract capital, to keep capital, it really requires an investment of significant amount of money to, to be able to sustain that. And, you know, when you have 42 million people in APAC migrating to cities in the year, going back to um, digitization, that's an important thing. So when I say we're so much at the infancy in infrastructure, I, I really mean it. Um, it can be water, it can be sewerage systems, it can be digital, it can be roads. There's so much to this. Um, and then even down to the regional perspective, it's, it's, a, it's a need that doesn't just exist in the U.S. So for these assets, these tend to be long in duration. There's both equity and debt. And on the debt side, quite frankly, very few outside of our, our insurance clients and their general accounts are taking advantage of the debt opportunity. And, and as we both know, to finance these projects that are becoming more plentiful every single day across the world, including, like I said, an APAC in scale, um, there's an opportunity on both sides. And I think that's where the asset mix change happens. It's recognizing that the attributes of these assets can have a role. The attributes of these assets can potentially replace some of these traditional assets. Uh, and, I, and I think you're going to see it grow. So infrastructure to us is, is really equity and, and debt. Um, and then on the credit side, like I, like I mentioned, it, again, too, it's a very, very big and growing market. And certainly the biggest area today in, from our vantage point is, is middle market lending from a scale opportunity standpoint. So, you know, we think much more to come in, in all of those spaces. Huh, really interesting. And, and let's just stay with the concept of, of public versus private, um, that line is kind of getting blurred uh, in the secondary markets. There's liquidity coming to, for lack of a better phrase, pre-public equities. Tell us a little bit about that space. Is that an area that is ripe for growth uh, for BlackRock? Yeah, it, uh, we, we absolutely think it is. Uh, and you're 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 absolutely correct. The secondary market is is growing quite substantially. If you if you even look at just the private equity secondary market and what will transact this year, you know we think it'll be potentially in excess of a hundred billion, and that's what will clear. That's not to mention what will be visible and what will be what will be analyzed, um, and and that speaks to me what's what's really happening and the innovation that that we mentioned earlier it's no longer about just primary exposure it's secondary exposure we then we see all sorts of interest in co-investment opportunities as well i i think the 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 available sources of alpha and the flexibility you can now have albeit if directed and advised i believe the right way barry can can be very helpful in in the portfolio um so your know, pre-IPO, it, it, it is a big part of actually what we do. And we think about growth equity. You know, 
there is there's a significant amount of capital following that space. You know, from from our vantage point as one of the largest investors in, in the public equity market, um, and now obviously one of the largest investors in the in the private side, you know, the bridge between between private to public, there's there's a real need. IPOs are not going away, uh, and I think smart informed capital to help with these journey these journeys is is, is really a, is really a necessity and a need. So let's talk a little bit about this recent restructuring. You were first named global head of BlackRock Alternative Investors in April 2019. The entire alternatives business was restructured. Tell us a little bit about how that restructuring is going. Continues to go really well, Barry. When you look at the the flow of assets from our clients, I think hopefully that speaks to the performance we've been generating. Um, you know, I joined the firm, as, as you know, albeit uh, 11 years ago, and, and being very close to the Alternatives franchise was, was a critical thing for me in running the institutional platform. Uh, t- to me, when you watch this migration of assets towards Alternatives, it, it was obviously very evident for decades now that this is a, is a critical leg of the stool as our clients are thinking about their portfolios. Um, we're continuing to innovate. We're continuing to invest, uh, and thankfully, we're continuing to deliver strong performance. Uh, we're growing uh, at about you know high double digits on an annual basis, uh, but we're trying to be purposeful too around where that growth is coming from. I think the reality is when you look at the the competitive universe. I think the last number I saw there was about thirty eight thousand alternative asset managers out there today obviously coming from hedge funds all the way through to private credit and private equity. So competition is real, and I do think the outcomes for our clients are starting to really grow. Uh, unfortunately, some, in some cases, obviously very good, in some cases, actually not great. So our, our focus Barry, is, is really much on how, how can we deliver performance, how can we be a partner, uh, and, and I think we've been rewarded uh, with the trust and the faith our clients have in us because they're, they're seeing something different, I think, from us. You know, the scale of the business that you mentioned earlier really gives us tentacles into the market that I believe allows us to access what I think is the new alpha, which is, in many respects, given the heft of competition, sourcing and originating new investments is certainly harder but for us sitting in or having our alternatives team sitting in 50 offices around the world, really investing in the markets because that's the market they grew up with and have relationships within, I think this, this network value that we have is, is something that's quite special. And, and I think in a world that's becoming increasingly competitive, we're going to continue to use and harness that network value uh, to pursue opportunities, and, and thankfully, as a result of the partnership we've been we've been pursuing with our clients, like we've cer- we're certainly looking for opportunities and investments in our funds. But because of the brand, I think because of the successes, opportunity seeks us as much as we seek opportunity, and and that has been something that you know we look at on an ongoing basis and feel very privileged to actually have that inbound flow as well. Huh. Really, really quite interesting. There, there was a quote of yours I found 
while while doing some prep for this conversation that I have to have you expand on. Quote, the relationship between BlackRock's alternative capabilities and wealth firms marked a large opportunity for growth in the coming years. This, this was back in 2019. So the first part of the question is, was your expectations correct? Did you, did you see the sort of growth you were hoping for? And more broadly, how large of an opportunity is alternatives, not just for BlackRock, but for the entire investment industry? Yeah, it's, it's been very much an institutional opportunity set up until now. And, and there's so much to be done still to to really democratize alternatives. And you know, we, we certainly joke around making alternatives less alternative. Uh, actually, even the, the nomenclature we use and how we describe it doesn't kind of make sense anymore. It's such a core and important allocation to our clients, Barry, that just calling it alternatives seems wrong. Um, as you think about the institutional clients, it ranges, I think, as I mentioned, on our some of our more conservative clients, which would be pension plans, which really have liquidity needs on a monthly basis because of the liabilities they have to think about. You know, at about 25 plus percent in private markets to endowments, foundations, family offices going to 50 percent plus. So it, it's a really important part and has been for now many years, the institutional climate community's outcomes. I think the thing that we, we as an industry have to change is alternatives has to be for the many, not for the few. And quite frankly, it's been for the few. And as we talked about some of the attributes and the important attributes of these asset classes, to think that you know those um, who have been less fortunate in their careers can't access things that can enrich their future retirement outcomes, to me is a failing. Um, and we have to address that. That comes from regulation changes. It comes from structuring of new products. It comes from education. And it comes from this, this, this knowledge transmission where um, clients in the wealth segment can understand the role of alternatives in the context of what that can do as they invest in equities and fixed income too. And, and we think that's a big shortfall. So the journey today, just to give you a sense, as we look at our clients in Europe on the wealth side, on average, as you look from what we would call accredited investors all the way through to more ultra high net worth individuals, their allocation to alternatives we believe stands at around two to three percent of their total portfolio. Mm-hmm. In the US, we believe it stands at three to five. So most of those intermediaries we speak to are partners who are who are supporting and serving the wealth channel. They have certainly an ambition to help their clients grow that to 20% and potentially even beyond that. So when I look at that gap of let's call it two to three to 20% in in a in a market that just given the explosion in wealth around the world, I think the the last numbers I saw this was a 65 trillion dollar market. Wow. Um, that speaks to the shortfall relative to the ambition. And you know how has it been going? We have a number of things and capabilities we've set up to allow for this market to experience, hopefully, private equity, hedge funds, credit, and infrastructure in ways they haven't in the past. Uh, We've done it in the U.S. We're doing it now in Europe. But I will say, Barry, this is still very much at the start of the journey. 
wealth is a really important part of our future, given our business, quite frankly, is 90 plus percent institutional today. But we're looking to change that by hopefully democratizing the, these asset classes and, and making it so much more accessible than that of the past. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So we we hinted at this before, but I'm going to ask the question outright. How significant is interest rates to clients' risk appetites? How much of the current low-rate environment are driving people to move chunks of their assets from fixed income uh, to alternatives? It's really significant, Barry. Um, I think that the transition of these portfolios um, is, is quite profound. So you, you, and I think the unfortunate thing in some respects as this transition happens um, is that you're introducing new variables and new risks and the reason I say it's unfortunate and that I think as an industry, this goes back to the education around the assets you own, understanding the role, um, understanding the various outcomes, I think is so incredibly important. And that this is a time where complete transparency is needed. Uh, and quite frankly, we're investing capital. It's not ours. As an industry, we're investing our clients' assets. Uh, and they need to know exactly the underlying investments. And, you know, in good and bad times, how would those assets behave? So certainly interest rates are driving a, a flow of capital away from these traditional assets, you know, fixed income and absolutely in towards um, real estate, infrastructure, private credit, et cetera, in the pursuit of this, this yield. But I do, I do think one of the things that's critically important for the institutional channel, not just the wealth, which are newer entrants, is, is this transmission of education, of data, because that's how I think you build a better balanced portfolio. Um, and that's a, that's a real conundrum, I think, that the, the industry is facing, and certainly our clients do. Huh, quite, quite interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit about the differences between investing in, in the private side versus the public markets, the most obvious one has to be the illiquidity. You know, when you buy stocks or bonds, you get a print every microsecond, every tick, but most of these investments are only marked quarterly or annually. What does this illiquidity do when you're interacting with clients? How do you how do you discuss this with them, and, and how do they perceive uh, some of the challenges of illiquid investments? So over, the, over the 
number, past number of decades, it, I think our clients have largely held too much liquidity in their portfolios. Huh. Like So what, what we are finding is the ability to take on illiquidity risk. And obviously, in pursuit of that premium above the traditional markets, I, mean, the, I think the sentiment there is, is an absolute right one. That transition towards private market exposure, we think, is, a, is an important one. Just given the, the return objectives the majority of our clients need, but then also, again, most importantly now, with geopolicy, with uncertainty, with interest rate uncertainty, inflation uncertainty, I mean, the, going back to the resilience point, the characteristics now by introducing these assets into the mix is important. And, and I think that's, that, that point is, is maybe what I'll expand on. As we're talking to clients using the Aladdin systems, and as you know, we bought eFront Technologies, albeit a, a couple of years ago, by allowing, I think, great data and technology to help our clients understand these assets in the context of how they should own them, relative to their liquidity needs, their risk tolerances, uh, and the return expectations. We're really trying to use tech and data to provide a better understanding and comprehension of the outcomes. And as we continue to introduce these concepts and these approaches, by the way, that they're, as you know, so used to in the traditional side, it's, it's giving them more comfort around what they should and can expect. Uh, and that, to me, is a really important part of what we're doing. So, you know, we've released recently new technology to the wealth sector because, you know, quite frankly, we mentioned it before, the 60-40 portfolio is, is a thing of the past. Um, and that, that introduction of about 20% into alternatives, we applaud our, our partners who are, who are suggesting that to their clients. We think it's something they have to do. What we're doing to support that is really bringing thought leadership, education, but also portfolio construction techniques uh, and, and data to bear in that conversation. Uh, and this goes back to it's no longer an alternative, right? This is a core allocation. So the comprehension of what it is you own, the behavior of the asset in good and bad times is so necessary. And, and that's become a very big thing uh, uh, with regard to our activities, Barry, because you know, our, our clients are looking to understand better when you're talking about assets that are very complex in their nature. Huh. So 60-40 is now 50-30-20, something along those lines? Yes. Huh. Really, really intriguing. Uh, so so what are clients really looking for these days? We, we talked about yield. Are they also looking for downside protection on the equity side or inflation hedges you hinted at? How broad are the demands of clients in, in the alternative space? It, it's, yeah, it's, it ranges the gamut. And, I, and even, you know, we didn't speak to even hedge funds. We've had, you know, differing levels of interest in the hedge fund world for, for years. Um, and I quite frankly think some degree of disappointment to Barry with, with regard to the alpha, the returns that were produced relative to the cost. It's a tough space, to say the very least. Exactly right. But when, when you start to see volatility introducing itself, um, you can really see where skill plays uh, a, a critical factor. So we're, we are absolutely seeing in the hedge fund space a, a resurgence of interest and demand by virtue of those who really have 
honed in on their skills, who have demonstrated in up and down markets an ability to protect and preserve capital, but importantly, in a low, if not uncorrelated way, build attractive risk-adjusted returns, we're starting to see more activity there again, too. I think within alternatives, you've really seen a, a, a predominant demand coming from, from privates. These private markets, like I said, have grown so extraordinarily fast, and the opportunity set is rich. The reality, too, on the public side, which is where hedge funds operate, they continue to, in, in large part, do a really good job. The, the issue with our industry now with the 38,000 managers is how do you distill all the information? How do you think about your needs as a client and pick a manager that can deliver the outcomes? And just to give you a sense, the, the difference now between a top-performing private equity manager, so a top quartile versus a bottom quartile, the difference can be measured in tens of percent. Wow. Whereas if you look at the public equity side, for example, a large cap manager, top quartile versus bottom quartile, it's measured in hundreds of basis points. So there, there is definitely a world that has started where uh, the outcomes our clients will experience can be great as they pursue yield, as they pursue diversification, inflation protection, et cetera. I think the caveat that I would say is, you know, the outcomes can vary greatly. So manager underwriting and the importance of it now, I think really is, is something to pay attention to. Because if you do have that bottom performing or the bottom quartile manager, it will, it will affect your, your outcomes, obviously. And, so, and that's a big thing we collectively have to, to face. So let's talk a little bit about real estate. Um, there are a couple of different areas of investment on the private side. Uh, rent to own was a very large one, and and we've seen um, some lesser buy to flip, uh, algo driven approaches. Tell us what BlackRock is doing in the real estate space, and how many different approaches are you bringing to bear on this? Yeah, we, we think it's it's both equity and debt, because um, again, no different to the infrastructure side. These projects need to be financed. But on the, if you think about the sectors in which you can avail of the opportunity, you know, you've no doubt heard a lot, and I mentioned earlier, this demand for logistics facilities. Uh, the explosion of you know, shopping online and having, until we've obviously had the supply chain disruption, an ability to have nearly immediate satisfaction because the delivery of the good uh, to your home has become so readily available. Uh, it's, it's a very different consumer experience. So the explosion and the need for logistics facilities to support this type of behavior of the consumer is, is, is really an area that will continue to be of great interest to us. And then you think, just think about the transformation of, of, of business. Um, and you think about the aging world, unfortunately, um, you know, you can look at various economies where our populations are decreasing, and quite frankly, we're getting older. And so when you, when you think of in the context of that, senior living facilities becomes a really important part, not just health, as part of the, the healthcare solution that will come with it, but also from living as well. So, you know, single-family, multifamily opportunities continue to be something that, you know, the world looks at because uh, there is really is a shortfall 
of available properties for people to, to live in. And as the communities evolve to support um, the growing age of the population, tremendous opportunity there too. But we won't give up on, on office space. It really isn't going away. Now, if you even think about our younger generation here in Black Rock, they love being in New York. They love being in London. They love being in Hong Kong. So the shape and the footprint may change slightly, but the necessity to be in the major financial centers, um, it still exists. But how we weight the risks has definitely changed, certainly for the, uh, for the short-term and medium-term future. Um, but real estate continues to be very, a, a critical part of how we express our, our thoughts around the investment opportunity set. But clients largely do this themselves too. The direct investing from the clients is quite significant because they too see this as, as still uh, a, a rich investment ground, albeit one that has changed quite a bit as a result of COVID. Huh. Well, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by the real estate issue, especially having seen some massive construction take place in cities pre-pandemic. Uh, look over in Manhattan at Hudson Yards and look at what's taking place uh, in London, uh, not not just um, the center of London, but all but all around it, and I'm forced to to admit the future is going to look somewhat different than the past, with some hybrid combination of collaborative work in the office and remote work from home when it's convenient. That sort of su- suggests that we now have an excess of capacity in office space. Do you see it that way, or is this just something that we're going to grow into and, and just the nature of working in offices is changing, but offices are not going away? Yeah, I, I do think there's, it's a very valid point in, in that in certain cities, you will see excess, and others, you, we just don't, Barry. Um, and quite frankly, as a firm, too, as you know, we have adopted flexibility with our teams. Now, we're very fortunate. The, the technologies in which we created a BlackRock has just become such an amazing enabler, not just to help us, as we mentioned, manage the portfolios, help us with better portfolio construction, understand risks, but also to communicate with our clients. You know, I think we've, we've all witnessed uh, and experienced a way to have connectivity um, that allows one to believe that commerce can exist beyond the boundaries of one building. You know, however, I do look at our property portfolios and even the things that we're doing, you know, rent collection still being extraordinarily high. Occupancy now getting back up to pre-pandemic levels, not in all cities, but in many of the major ones that have reopened. And certainly the demand for people to just socialize, that, that, that demand for human connectivity is really high. It's palpable, right? We see it here too. The smiles on people's faces, they're back in the office conversing together, innovating together. Um, you know, when people were feeling unsafe, unquestionably, I think the question marks around the role of office space was really brought to bear. But as we're coming through this, um, as you've seen vaccine rates change, as you've seen the infection rates fall, as you've seen confidence grow, the return to work is really happening and return to work to office work is really happening, albeit now with degrees of flexibility. So going back to the, I, I, I do believe in certain areas, you're seeing a surplus, 
but in many areas, you're absolutely seeing a deficit. Uh, and, and the reason I say that, Barry, is that we are seeing occupancy in certain buildings at such a high level, and frankly, the demand for more space being so high, um, it's uneven. And this goes back to then, you know, wh- where do you invest our clients' capital? Making sense of those trends, predicting where uh, you will see resilience versus stress, and building that into the portfolio consequences as you as you better risk manage and mitigate. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Very interesting. And so we are seeing this transition across a lot of different segments of investing. Are you seeing any products that were or, or investing styles that was once thought of as primarily institutional that are sort of working their way towards the retail uh, side of things, meaning going from institutional to accredited to mom-and-pop investors? Um, well, certainly in the past, private equity was, was really an asset class for institutional investors. And, and I think that's, that has changed in, in, in a very profound way. Now, I mentioned earlier, Barry, that you know, regulation has become a bit more adoptive, but it also has hurt in many respects in providing this access. And I think the perception of owning and be part of this illiquid investment opportunity set was hard to stomach because many didn't under, understand the attributes and what it could bring. And I think we've been trying to solve for that. And what you're seeing now with with regulators understanding that the difference between, if we take it quite simply as DB versus DC, the differences between the options you have as a participant in in a retirement plan are so vastly different that, and I think there's a broad recognition now that there needs to be more equity with regard to what happens there. And private equity being a really established part of the alternatives marketplace was once, I think, really believed to be an institutional asset class, but albeit uh, now has become much more accessible to wealth. We've seen it by structuring um, activities in Europe, uh, working with the regulators there. Now we're able to provide private equity exposure to clients across the continent, and they're really getting access to what was historically very much an institutional asset class. Uh, and I do think the receptivity is extraordinarily high because throughout people's careers, they have seen wealth being created as a result of engineering a great outcome with great management teams in a great business. And I, and I do believe 
um, the receptivity towards private equity is high, as, as as an example. In the U.S. too, you know, working with the various intermediaries and being able to wrap now private equity in a 40-act fund, for example, is possible. And by being able to deliver that to you know, the many as opposed to the few, we think has been a, a very good success story. And I think obviously appreciated by, by our clients as well. So I would look at that we're seeing across private equity as well as private credit and quite frankly, infrastructure. Uh, you're seeing now regulation that's becoming more uh, appreciative of these asset classes. Uh, you're seeing a more a greater level of openness and willingness to allow for these assets to be part of many people's experiences across their investment portfolio. And now with innovation around structures, uh, as an industry, we're able to wrap these investments in a way that our clients can really access them. So I think across the board, it probably speaks to the innovation that's happening. But I do think that accessibility has changed in a very significant way. Um, but you've really seen it happen in private equity first, and now that's spanning across these various other asset classes. Quite intriguing. I know I only have you for a, a relatively limited period of time, so let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with, tell us what you've been streaming these days. Give us your favorite Netflix or Amazon Prime shows. That's, <laughs> that is an interesting question, Bart. I uh, I don't watch a hell of a lot of TV. Uh, I got to tell you, I um, I keep busy with three wonderful children and a beautiful wife. Uh, and you know, between the sports activities, when I do watch TV, uh, I, I have to tell you, I'm addicted to sports. And uh, having I may have mentioned it earlier, growing up playing rugby, which is not the most common sport in the U.S. Uh, I stream nonstop the Six Nations uh, that happens in Europe, where Ireland is one of those Six Nations that compete against each other on an annual basis. Right now, they're playing a, a lot of sides that are touring for the Southern, southern Hemisphere. Uh, and to me, the free time that I have is either uh, enjoying golf or really enjoying rugby, because uh, I think it's, a, it's, a, it's an extraordinary sport, obviously very physical, was very enjoyable to watch, and that that truly is my passion outside of family. Huh, interesting stuff. Tell us uh, a bit about your mentors who helped to shape your early career. Well, it, it even even goes back to some of the the, the aspects of sports. Um, you know, playing on a team and being on a on a field where you're you're working together. There's a strategy involved with that. You know, I used to really appreciate how we approached playing in or the Old Ireland League, um, how we thought about our opponents, how we thought about the structure, how we thought about each individual within a rugby field and the team having a role. They're all different, um, but you knew your role. And, and actually, even starting from an early age, Barry, thinking about, and I know it's, it's sports, but how to build a great team with those various skills, perspectives, uh, that can be a really, really powerful combination when done well. Uh, and certainly from an early age, that allowed me to appreciate that actually in, in the work environment, it's not too different. Like if you surround yourself with just really great people that have high integrity, um, that are empathetic and have a degree of humility that, you know, when working together, good things can happen. 
Um, and, and I will say it really started at sports. But I think of today, in, even in BlackRock, you know, how Larry Fink thinks about the world. Um, and I think of Larry truly as a visionary. And then Rob Capito, who really helps lead the charge across our various businesses, you know, speaking and conversing with them on a daily basis, getting their perspectives, trying to get inside their head and thinking about the world from their vantage point. To me, it's, 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 a, it's a huge thing about my ongoing personal career and development. And I, I really enjoy those moments because I think what you recognize is independent of how much you think you know, there's so much more to know. And this, this journey is, is, is an ever-evolving one uh, where you have to appreciate that you'll never know everything and you need to be a student every single day. So I'll probably cite those barriers, certainly the two most important mentors in my life today, both professionally and personally, quite frankly. Huh. Really very interesting. Uh, let's talk about what you're reading these days. Tell us about some of your favorite books and what you're reading currently. Barry, what I love to read, I love to read history, believe it or not, um, from a very small country that seems to have exported many, many people. Uh, love to understand the history of Ireland. So there's so many books. Uh, and you know, having three children that have been born in the U.S. and my wife is, is a New Yorker, uh, trying to help them understand you know, some of their history and what's made them what they are. Um, I love delving into Irish history and, and how they, the country has had moments of greatness and moments of tremendous struggle. Um, outside of that, I really don't enjoy science fiction or any of these books. I love reading. Um, you name any paper and any magazine on a daily basis. Uh, unfortunately, I wake at about 4.30 to 5 o'clock every day. I spend my first two hours of the day just consuming as much information as possible. I enjoy it. But it's all it's it's really investment related magazines, not books. It's every paper that you could possibly imagine, Barry. Uh, and I just I've a I've a great appreciation for certainly trying to be a student of the world because that's what we're operating in. And and I find that just a very interesting avenue to to get an appreciation to for the not just the opportunities but the challenges we're collectively facing as a society and but also as a business. I'm with you on that mass consumption of uh, of investing related news. Uh, I, I sounds like you and I have the same uh, morning routine. Um, let's talk about uh, what sort of advice you would give to a recent college graduate who was interested in a career uh, of alternative investments. Well, you know the the, the industry has. It's just gone through such extraordinary growth. Um, and the difference when I started versus today, the career opportunity set has changed so much. And I, th I think I try to remind any one of our analysts who come into each one of our annual classes, right, as we bring in the new recruits, I think about how talented they are first, Barry. Uh, and how privileged we all are to, one, be in this industry and work for the clients that we do. It's just such an honor to do that. But I, kind of, I try to remind them of that. Um, you know, at the end of the day, whether you're supporting an institution, that institution is the face of many people in, in the background. And Alternatives has really now become such an important part of their experience. And we talked about earlier just this challenge of retirement. 
uh, if we do a good job, these institutions that support the many, they can have hopefully a retirement that involves, you know, dignity, and they can have an ability to do things they so wanted to do as they worked so hard over their lives. You know, getting that that personal connection and, and allowing for those newbies to understand that that's the effect that you can have. Um, and alternatives, whether it's private equity, real estate, infrastructure, private credit, hedge funds, all of these now with the scale at which they're operating at can allow for a great career. But my advice to them is always don't forget your career is supporting other people. And that comes directly through how we intersect with the wealth channel. It comes indirectly as, as a result of the institutions. And, and it's such a privilege um, to do that. I didn't envision when I grew up, <laughs> as I mentioned, my first job milking cows and back in a small town in the middle of Ireland that I would be one day leading an alternative business uh, within BlackRock. I see that as a great privilege. So, you know, for for those who are joining afresh, uh, hopefully try to remind them that it, it is that for all of us and show up with empathy, dignity, compassion and, you know, do the best you can. And hopefully these people we serve will serve them well. And our final question, what do you know about the world of alternative investing today? You wish you knew 25 years or so ago when you were first uh, getting started. I think if we had invested much more heavily as an industry in technology, we would not be in the position we are today. Um, and I say that, Barry, from, from a number of aspects. I mentioned the, the shortfall of information our clients um, are dealing with today. You know, they're making choices to divest from one asset class to invest in another. To do that and do that effectively, they need great transparency. They need it real time in many respects. It can't be just on a quarterly lag basis. And if we had been better prepared as an industry to provide the technology and the data to help our clients really appreciate what it is they own, how we're managing the assets on their behalf, I, th I think they would be so much better served. I think we're very fortunate at this firm to have built a business on the back of technology for albeit 30 plus years. And we're investing over a billion dollars a year in technology, as, as I'm sure you know. Um, but we need to see more of that in the industry. So the client experience is so important. Stop, let's demystify alternatives. It's not that alternative. Let's provide education and, and data. Um, and it's become so large relative to other asset classes. Um, the need to support, to educate and transmit information, uh, not data, information so our clients can understand it, is at a paramount now. And, and, I, and I think certainly as an industry, things have to change there. If I knew how big the growth would have been and how prominent these asset classes uh, were becoming, I would have pushed so much harder on that front 30 years ago. Thank you, Edwin, for being so generous with your time. We have been speaking with Edwin Conway. He is the head of BlackRock Investor Alternatives Group. If you enjoy this conversation, please check out all of our prior discussions. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts at. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. 
You can sign up for my daily reads at Ritholtz.com. Check out my weekly column at Bloomberg.com slash opinion. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. Mohammed is my audio engineer. Paris Wald is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it. If you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.